one of the greatest expressions of what we've just sung in desiring God's will, not our own, is when we turn our attention to the primary means in which he's made his will known, which is most certainly his word. And so we delight to not only pray those things, but we seek to follow through in applying those things as we give our attention to hearing, receiving, and applying God's word. So would you turn with me in your copy of God's word to Exodus chapter 5 this morning? If you're using one of the hardback Bibles in front of you, uh, you'll find Exodus to be towards the front of that book, and you'll find it specifically on page 44. We'll be reading Exodus chapter 5. We're going to consider through chapter 6 this morning. Would you read with me? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and may pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will give you no straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go. Now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned 
to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to your people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to all the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, if for I am of uncircumcised lips? The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Would you pray with me? Father, we are a needy people, not merely the weight of the tremendous burden of physical needs, the needs that plague our body in our failing health, the needs that press our finances and our accounts, the needs within family members and relationships and vocations and responsibilities. Lord, underneath all of that, we have a need for you. We have a need to hear from your authoritative, good, and gracious voice. Lord, we have a great need for your spirit, because we confess that left to ourselves and the sinful pollution upon our hearts and lives, we grow deaf and we grow apathetic, we even doubt or even become angry and scoff at your ability to do exactly what you say. So, Father, would you help us by your own spirit that you, Lord, would work in the soil of our hearts that it might be ready to receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save our souls? God, would you work in such a way that you would cause good fruit to come from the seed of your word that we would hear and receive by faith and love 
that we would store it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We do pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Throughout the Christian life, the uh, issue of perspective is of utmost importance. Uh, Perspective is just simply that ability to see from a particular vantage point in which we stand and how that vantage point shapes what we're able to see. If you enjoy hiking, photography, art, or even athletics, you rely upon this reality of perspective. Because in your hiking, it is that perspective of mountaintop views that we seek and we admire. It's the angle of shadows or color within the art that we view. And it's the ability to read a defensive formation and know how to respond. Our reliance upon perspective is of utmost importance. But what if our perspective is limited? What if our perspective and our vantage point prevents us from seeing things the way that they actually are? Well, it may lead you to the wrong conclusions. It may lead you to assume that reality is different than it actually is. It may even lead you to be deceived, misled, wrongly informed. It might even lead you to say things like, who's the Lord that I should obey him? Or it may lead you to respond to your circumstances with prayers like, why have you done this great evil? Why are you not working as you promised? The matter of perspective has everything to do with our ability to understand who God is and who we are. The matter of perspective has led Pharaoh, in this text, to reject the Lord. It's led Moses to doubt the Lord. And what they both need to hear is, I am the Lord. That perspective and those various perspectives within this text sets off the framework for what we need to see and what we need to hear from God's word this morning. Let's consider Pharaoh's response, first of all, from his perspective that provokes him to scoffingly and mockingly say, who is the Lord? If you look back in chapter 5, really, the first 14 verses, you see how they are set off by Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh just as God directed and speaking just as God commanded. God has met with them. His name is Yahweh. And now he's commanding them to go and hold a feast in the wilderness. Shorthand, it's time for us to leave. Now, this command is met with what we might call in our terms a brick wall. Not only was there no hint of accommodation, there is this rebuttal by Pharaoh on his part to even harsher conditions. The quota of bricks, he says, to remain the same. But the provision of straw is now removed. I'm expecting your daily quota will not look any different, but now you must also find a way to get the necessary ingredient for these bricks to be bricks. I hear your request for idle wandering in the wilderness. 
and I raise it with this demand for more work. Now, the heart of this refusal here is Pharaoh's blunt response. Did you hear it? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? I don't know your Lord. I don't know your God. And moreover, I'm under no obligation to him. I will not let Israel go. Now, this is going to be a continued and unfolding, developing theme as we make our way through Exodus in the coming chapters as Yahweh shows his might over the authority of Pharaoh. And while there may be many recognized gods in Egypt and even gods in Pharaoh's mind that he's thinking, I know that God, I know that God, I know that God. Yahweh, I don't know this God. Well, one of the coming themes is that they shall most certainly know Yahweh. And they will see his glory. And they will understand that when he speaks, there is no one who can resist him. But what we need to see in this response of Pharaoh is that it's not unique to him. It is actually the cry of every man and every nation apart from grace. It's the revelation that's given to us in Psalm chapter 2 that says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, Lord, in all caps, if you remember that from last week, and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who's the Lord? Why should I obey him? The natural man is not neutral. The natural man, meaning in and of ourselves, apart from God and the working of his grace, is not considerate of God. Is not even warm to the idea of God. Specifically, the God of the Bible not warm to the idea of God having all authority over all creation, maybe, over my life, most certainly not. Apart from the gracious work of God, every man, every woman, every child is in opposition to God. And apart from the work of God's Spirit, you hear God's Word and you think it to be absolute nonsense. So this gets right, really, to the heart of one of the most important questions that you could ever ask. What has sin done to us? For one, sin is refusing God's word. Resisting God's word. The creator is the speaking God who gives clear commands and warnings, instruction, But in our sin, we reject this word and determine that this God is neither trustworthy nor good. Sin embraces deceit and the deceiver. But secondly, sin brings about this spiritual hardness towards God and makes us more likely to embrace foolishness. We harden towards God and soften towards folly. Sin does this. And though every human being is corrupted by sin, 
every human being retains these faculties of a human being, but we lose our spiritual eyes. We lose our spiritual ears, and our inner man becomes deaf in unbelief and disobedience. You know what? Even if you were born into a home with Christian parents, and even if you've gone to this church for the entirety of your life, in your natural state, apart from the gracious work of God, you are just like Pharaoh. Because you will find yourself saying, Who is the Lord? that my life should bow to him. If faith and obedience are the right response to God, then unbelief is the sinful and rebellious response to God. This is why Augustine said that unbelief is the sin wherein all sins are included. What we need to be saved from is not just individual sins. We need to be saved from our unbelief. That's why Luther said, unbelief is the root, the sap, and the chief power of all sin. So this means that sin is not just the foolish mistakes that you have made or the consequences that you have brought down upon the people that you love. You, in your sin, are hardened against God. In our sin, we refuse to hear His voice and submit to His ways. So if that's true, what does it mean when we're confessing sin? We did that this morning. We were corporately praying together, confessing sin. Maybe you've seen that in Scripture, the exhortation to confess your sins to God. Maybe you've grown up in a context to where that was important to do, to go to confession. What is the Bible teaching about this call to confess sin? And what are we actually doing when we confess sin? Well, when we confess sin, we are admitting that we've raised ourselves up against God, first and foremost. We're admitting that we've refused to listen when he's spoken in his word. When we confess sin, we are confessing that we've turned away ultimately from the very purpose and ultimate meaning of our life, which is to glorify him. And we've sought glory in ourselves, in our circumstances, or some other created thing. So to say that you are a sinner is to say that you've been hard-hearted, stubborn, rebellious, defiled, guilty, and worthy of punishment. In short, to sin is to hate God. Because sin is enmity with God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And if you are a believer in God or not, friend, do not forget... The smallest expression of sin remains fully sin. Do you know what I mean? John Owen said, every drop of poison is poison and will infect. Every spark of fire is fire and will burn. 
Now do sin. That's what I mean. Even the smallest expression of sin still remains enmity with God. It's the rebellion, the deception, the power, the corruption of sin that causes us to say, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? Not just simply with my life and the whole idea of am I a Christian or not, but Christian in the very detail of your life when the word of God comes to you very specifically and you bristle and say, why should I obey this? And surely even just the faintest realization of what sin is ought to lead us to cry out, to say, what am I? Who am I? What have I done? That's why the pleading of the Apostle John is so pertinent to us. In 1 John 1, verse 8, where he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Start there. If. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this matter of perspective has everything to do with who is the Lord. But there's another response to God that we must also consider, and it's heard in Moses' question. Back in verse 15, the taskmasters come to Pharaoh and they plead the case of the people that this is unreasonable. And then after that conversation, they leave the presence of Pharaoh. In verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to him, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and it put a sword in their hands to kill us. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses' perspective, why, O Lord? Now, if we place ourselves in Moses' shoes, it's not hard to imagine the response that he gives in verse 22. I mean, honestly, Moses is blamed for the mess that they're in, and so Moses now in turn goes to God and blames God for the mess that they're in. Why, O Lord, have you done evil to this people, and why, O Lord, Did you ever send me? And why, O Lord, have you not done what you said? Now, why would Moses say that? Well, remember what God has most certainly said. If you just glance back at chapter 3, probably a page over to your left, verse 7, what has God already said? I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into the good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And when the people of Israel, when they heard this, at the end of chapter 4, verse 31, they believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. But now Moses does some quick math on the back of a napkin and says, something doesn't add up here. You've given me great and precious promises. I've been obedient. I've gone to Pharaoh. But things are worse than they were before. This equation is faulty. God, why did you get us into this mess? And why are you not doing anything about it? And why is this the result to my faithfulness? That's really what Moses is saying. Can you relate? Because we often start our praying in the same sort of way and offer up the same sort of prayers, thinking along the same sort of lines when circumstances run obviously contrary to God's good design and promises. Does God really know what he's doing? And we doubt his wisdom. Is he really in control of all things? We doubt his authority. Is he punishing me? And we doubt his love. Moses' cry of why, O Lord, is charging the Lord with failing to deliver them, but it's based upon a wrong assumption. It's the assumption, though, that you and I often make in our weekly existence. It's an assumption that you and I often make in trying to make sense of our circumstances. We assume that obedience to God and the possession of the promises of God will mean that our lives ought to be better than they are. Moses, like many other of God's people, he's essentially speaking too soon. He has what could be summarized as an over-realized eschatology. It's a big word, but let me break it down because it's exactly what we do often. An over-realized eschatology is just essentially the assumption that most or all of what God has prepared and promised for his people in the future is to be experienced by God's people in the present Okay, eschatology is just the study of the last things, from the time of Christ's resurrection to the final days till his return. And a realized eschatology focuses on the aspects of what God is doing and what he shall do, the promises, and what Christians get to experience. And if we take an overly realized eschatology, we will try and pull all, if not most, of God's promises of what he shall do in the future and bring them down into our present. And we forget that there's this distinction in Scripture, this tension of what's been referred to as already, but not yet. It's already yours, but not yet. We begin to think and assume that if God has promised it, well, then I should experience it right now, according to my timeline. 
Someone holding to an over-realized eschatology might assume that since there will be no more sickness or pain in the future, we should not experience sickness or pain in the present. Since we'll walk on streets of gold, earthly luxuries should be expected now, if you are a Christian. And we should be financially stable, dare I say successful, now. Since Christ has come to eradicate the presence of sin and restore all things, then Christians should not have to fight against sin or temptation now. So when we believe that we should experience all or most all of Christ's blessings of future heaven, life, and glorified state now, it leads us then, friend, to wrongly assume that the Lord has done us evil. And to say to him, you've not delivered your people in the least bit. You haven't kept your promise. Now the psalmist was guilty of the same false assumption. He looked at the world around him. He could see that there are those that are haters of God, those that do wicked deeds, those that shake their fist at God, persecute God's people, and they prosper. It's Psalm 73, if you want to read it later this afternoon. The psalmist gives a little confession on the front end and says, let me tell you something where we're going to go. He says, truly God is good to Israel. Those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had nearly stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So that's just kind of the heading of where he says, this is where this psalm is going. And he gives some details. He says in verse 5, he said, what I saw is that they're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He goes on in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This holy life is not working. And I'm beginning to think it's not worth it. Until verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It wasn't until the psalmist went into the sanctuary, the place that testified of the righteous judgment of God against sin, all sin, apart from the provision of the sacrifice. Until I went to the place that speaks of judgment and mercy, I could not make sense of the world around me. Then I understood their end. In short, what this man needed was the long view. He needed to see the reality of judgment. He needed to see the reality of God's provision for his own sin. 
Because if we judge the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, and the authority of God on any given day, purely by our circumstances, we will often come to the wrong conclusions. That's why we so desperately need the Word of God to set our vision in the right place. To remind us of the overarching truths that actually define our circumstances instead of our circumstances trying to define the truth. Until we go into the sanctuary, we will not understand. Has God forgotten to be good? Do trials and hardships, even worsening hardships in the face of your obedience, does that mean that the Lord has failed to deliver? In the mid-1800s, Samuel Stone wrote a hymn, The Church's One Foundation. First verse, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. You sing verse 1 with a hearty amen. I love this song. Verse 5. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till, with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Samuel Stone knew something about already, not yet. All of this is true, verse 1. All of this is true, verse 5. That the church victorious shall be the church at rest. Right now, friends, we're not at rest. If you find yourself surprised, disappointed, even defeated, asking why, O Lord, you promised, but I don't see it at all, is it possible that you have forgotten to take the long view. Obedient Christians, armed with God's promises, are not exempt from toil and tribulation. We need to know that, or our lives will not make sense. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Those are Peter's words to the church scattered. Just like Moses, we may often ask, why, O Lord? But the better question is, who are you, Lord? And in fact, that is the exact answer that God gives to Moses. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 1, right after Moses' prayer, what do we find? The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob 
is God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush, and amidst this bush that burned but did not consume God gave the revelation of his holiness, and he said, I am that I am. He is the unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. I am. We hear this in scriptures and phrases like Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all the deeps. Or Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Or in Isaiah 40, verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In response to Moses' cry of why, God says, I am. Now, this is a passing reminder for us that most often when we ask God why, God most helpfully responds with a revelation of himself. There are many days and circumstances that we do not have specific answers as to why. And friends, there may be specific circumstances that you never get an answer to why. But what God has said is this is who I am. God spoke to Moses and told him, I am the Lord. And he repeats the announcement that he has not turned his back upon his people, that he has heard their groaning, and nor has he broken his covenant promise. He keeps his covenant in view. And then he launches into this declaration of what he will do. Did you hear that repeated phrase? And when God wills, you can be certain that he shall. Seven times this phrase, I will, is repeated perfection. And those seven restatements of what God most certainly will do could essentially be condensed into four promises. Liberation, redemption, adoption, provision. 
I am the Lord. Verse 6, I will liberate my people. The image of that is that a, a burden that is so massive, so oppressive, that somebody has to come along next to you, get underneath that burden, and lift it up so that you can escape from underneath it. Underneath it, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from your slavery. And at its most basic level, this is the description of salvation that God provides. He liberates us from slavery and delivers us from captivity. A burden that we cannot get out from underneath of ourselves. The Lord says, but I will. I am the Lord. I will redeem my people. Also verse 6. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Redemption is a term that's throughout our Bibles because it is a key image in understanding just what it is that God does for sinners. It has to do with slavery. And it has to do with purchasing the freedom of a slave to buy them out, to bring them into freedom. Someone has been sold into slavery because of their debt, because of war, because of captivity, and their freedom is purchased by another through the payment of a ransom. I am the Lord. I will redeem my people. God is the one who redeems his people because he is the one who makes the sufficient payment to ransom his people out of slavery. I am the Lord. I will adopt my people. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, in this sense, take, it has everything to do with bringing someone close. It has everything to do with this New Testament understanding of adoption as to what God does for his people. The heart of the covenant promise is not just detached rescue of victims. It's the familial drawing close of reconciling beloved ones. It is rooted in God's passionate love for His people. Just think of some of the images that were given in Scripture. The unification of estranged children to a loving father. The restoration of a kingdom people to a gracious king. The reclaiming of a wandering sheep to a faithful shepherd. I will be your God. You will be my people. I am the Lord. I'll preserve my people. Because he says in verse 8, I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you for a possession. God promises not only to deliver them, but to bring them to the final end. How much we need to hear that. My sins are forgiven. A burden is lifted. But is he sufficient to keep me? Is he sufficient to bring me all the way to glory? I am the Lord. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. Now, Perhaps one of the saddest statements in Scripture is there in verse 9. In light of all of these wills, 
in light of all of these promises, news that everyone ought to rejoice in, we're told that these people heard nothing. It fell on deaf ears without any visible effect. They were unimpressed, unmoved by the announcement of this. They did not listen. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. But this response, this condition, it's not unique to Israel. Because of the corruption of our nature due to sin, we are totally unable to respond to God on our own. Historically, the language is this, that we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good. That's what sin does. That's what the burden of sin does. That's what the bondage of sin does. That's why Jesus would teach clearly and definitively in John's gospel, John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Friend, the bad news is that you are in your natural state unable and unwilling to seek out the deliverance that you need. But the good news is that God grants sinners what they do not have. He creates what does not exist. God must first do something for us, to us, in order for us to even hear this good news to be good news and to respond in, in faith. God promises and he says, I will and I can overcome the bondage of sin that causes calloused hearts to have no desire for him to suddenly say, I must know him. I repent. I believe in this God. If he can do this, and if he has said that he can do this, then I'm all in. And this is precisely what God does in the story of Exodus. God takes it upon himself to rescue these people with such a might and such a power that they will see, that they will hear, and they will know that he is Yahweh. Now, Exodus is not just the history of Israel. It is the story, Christian, of your salvation. Our salvation in Christ is the greatest exodus of them all. And just as God came and spoke promises of what he would do for this nation in this country, we will see the same promises fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is our liberator. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation chapter 1, the vision of the risen Christ. Jesus is our redeemer. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 1. And through Christ, we are most certainly reconciled, united to him, adopted by him, and kept for him. 
the end of Revelation, John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And by him, because Jesus is resurrection, we're given all we need. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is true because Jesus is the one who provides all that we need because of his resurrection. Christian, lift up your head and hear the good news. Let it wash over you. Are you feeling the burden and regret and even the guilt of your sin? There is forgiveness in Christ. And that's why we are continually exhorted to turn to him. Are you weighed down with this sense of suffering and agony of trial? Then look to Christ because he promises to sustain you and keep you all of your earthly days. And if we find ourselves doubting his favor, do we see this Christ? That he is the provision and the declaration of God's abiding love for his people. That is the substance of our assurance. That he has given us his son. I am the Lord. And I will. Is where God's people rest. Father, we pray that you would most certainly help us to rest. We often seek rest in the pursuit of peaceful circumstances. We often seek rest from the escape of difficult situations. Lord, we know we can only find the rest that we need when we understand who you are and what you've given to us in your Son. So we pray in the midst of our circumstances, our defeats, our struggles, Lord, help us to know that you have revealed yourself to us and that you are most certainly the Lord. Amen.